Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I'm based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Glenn Hines from Derry, Northern Ireland. Hello there, Glenn. Hi, Seb. Hi, everybody. Hello, everyone. Um, well, today we uh, we have a, uh, an interesting episode, as always, as well, as we think, as always, for you all. And uh, before we uh, set the stage a bit and, and a bit of the context, um, Glenn, why don't you orient people to the ways that we can that they can access us? Of course. Thanks, Seb. Uh, as always, you can contact us through Twitter at Change Talking. Uh, direct it to myself. It's at Glenn Hines. For Seb, it's SGK from NC. And on Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. And Facebook, it's Talking to Change. And our email for questions or information on trainings, it's podcast at glennhines.com. Great. So today we are addressing a concept in MI that we haven't addressed yet, really. I don't know that it's even come up at all in, in any of our previous episodes. So this is an episode on Discord. And we just felt like it'd be uh, useful to set a bit of the context, uh, I guess, historically with this term of Discord. Um, so in, in earlier editions of the main MI text, Miller and Rolnick used a phrase that everyone really appreciated and kind of kind of loved this phrase of rolling with resistance. And it described a really um, kind of gentle way of responding to somebody who, you know, um, was not maybe on board with the change plan or was uh, perhaps pushing back on uh, certain suggestions. And, um, and, you know, they, they, they wrote a lot about it and people can access that uh, on their own. But uh, what, as I understand it anyway, the, the word resistance has maybe a not so patient centered or client centered history. And Bill and Steve thought long and hard about, you know, what if we drop the term resistance altogether and how could we then um, explain or describe what we think is helpful and what concepts we want people to take away from. And so they, they sort of broke apart resistance into the terms sustained talk, which as many of you know, is, is just sort of the other side of ambivalence really, you know, with ambivalence, there's change talk and there's the reasons to change and there's sustained talk, the reasons not to change. But they also wanted to capture the experience where there's um, perhaps a rupture in the actual relationship between the provider and the client. And that's where they borrowed this term or applied this term of discord to describe that aspect of the experience, which, as we all know, uh, comes up from time to time. And so <clears throat> so we, uh, we we were interested in the idea of a uh, of an episode on Discord and, and Stephen Andrew, um, who you all will uh, hear from, uh, proposed actually proposed the idea to us uh, a couple of years back at a conference, and uh, so that's that's a bit about uh, Discord and, and its history, I suppose, um, mm. within the MI literature. But um, but as far as today's episode, uh, Glenn, we we just got finished talking with Stephen. What um, what, what do you think? What are your thoughts about what we've just discussed? Yeah, well, like you say, it's it's interesting for us to consider the, the whole relational aspect of the discord, that that uh, resistance is now split into what's going on between me and you as a practitioner and, and how I'm thinking about you and perhaps how you're thinking about me, along with 
what we now call a sustained talk and just people working through their ambivalence. That in the conversation that we went beyond just the exploration of Discord to explore a lot of the key concepts of motivation living where Stephen has offered, I suppose, what we can consider adaptations or translations of things like uh, reflective listening. He's changed the way he describes that when he's doing training. But also in his in his understanding of Discord, her description of Discord, he talks about the relationship the individual has with themselves and that the Discord happens between the individual's head and their heart. So it's, it's a really uh, intriguing way of going back even deeper into the concept and maybe exploring discord in the context of it, its presentation from a spirit perspective uh, of motivation. And we then go on to invite uh, Stephen to offer an intervention. So there's an opportunity at the end of this episode for to hear Stephen practice his uh, manifestation of motivation with me talking about, again, a real, a real uh, concern for me at the time of recording. And just to notice how he does that, and and I suppose what it offers is, I guess that there'll be people out there who maybe listen to this, who are MI aficionados, who will go, you know, it's really interesting that he makes the key concepts of MI more accessible to a wider population by the way he translated it, and perhaps other people go, well, if, if the way you're describing it is different from what motivation interviewing is, so it's what you're describing is something other than MI. That's a that's a conversation for another day, and I guess it will be something for you, the audience, to decide for yourselves. But what's interesting is listening to Stephen help me the way he helps me in the twenty five minutes at the end of this episode. Right, and and again, we appreciate your willingness to do this, and uh, and we hope uh, again that uh, an example of how these kinds of conversations sound are helpful to you all as you're learning and going through your own MI journey. So without further ado, let's go ahead to the episode. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. We really appreciate you joining us. Um, if you could start, as we always do, just give us a bit of your background and what we often call your early MI story. I think the earliest MI story was that uh, somebody offered me a free workshop. And I love the word free. So uh, uh, off to Albuquerque, I went to be part of a research study. Uh, and I was placed in a coaching group uh, after the training. Uh, and I thought I knew uh, empathy, and I was pretty good at it. And then I got back my first tape that said, very client-centered, but not am I. Um, and it began a journey for me. Uh, that was in 2001. And in 2003, in... Uh, Greece, uh, I became a MIT member, and uh, now in 2019, certified MI trainer by the board of directors in terms of motivational interviewing network of trainers. Uh, I've had an incredible journey of 18 countries, and I've done about 150 days a year of training, um, and most of my practice now, which is uh, primarily support groups uh, is built around motivational energy. Uh, that's only the beginning. I started, I'm a CEO or chief energizing officer, I call it, uh, 
for health education and training, which has got 15 staff and all of them dedicated to motivational entering. Wow, quite a lot going on there, Stephen, and, and particularly how early an adapter of motivational viewing you were in the, in the world of practice. And what, what struck me was the fact that when you went to Albuquerque that you had this belief, you know what, I'm, I'm rock and roll here, I'm doing all, all of this stuff. To hear that, yes, what you're doing is this thing called client-centered helping, but it's not motivational interviewing. And I guess that, that will be very interesting for a lot of people listening to, the, to understand the difference between client-centered helping and motivational interviewing. And if you could just give us an idea of what it was you discovered was that made what you were doing different from motivational interviewing. And it's, it's really an attitude of, of uh, do you believe that fundamentally that people are doing the best that they can? and that they have the resources within themselves to set a direction. And what client-centered is, is you, you're present with people. You really listen to them. You really are empathetic. But MI has this, I believe in you. And I believe that uh, uh, within you is this place where you have a whisper of hopes and dreams. And that's very different than just being present with people's suffering. So there's more of a, a looking forward through a lens that, again, is, assumes that there's potential in the other person. Uh, I, I suppose when you're doing a client-centered type of therapy that isn't MI, you might also believe the best in another person but maybe the term present versus directional, I guess, are, are key differences there, if, if, yeah. that's what, if I'm hearing you right. Yeah, and it may not actually be the word directional, maybe guiding towards. It, it may be a little softer than the word directional. Mm-hmm. But, but there is, a, there is a, a belief, even in the face of the deepest suffering, uh, that, that there is a resiliency also within the person that you're gently guiding towards. And, and again, this will be very interesting for people. It, it sounds like there's a very powerful yet subtle understanding here, which is the guiding towards is, is that that the practitioner already knows to be true about this other person that already exists, whatever, whoever this person is going to be is already present. It's it's the guide, the role of the practitioner is to guide the individual to an awareness of themselves. Mm. And, and or their ability to ask for help, which is also a, a growth guiding principle, which is that people hold their suffering really as a belief. And, and I have sort of played with this a little bit to kind of come up with what I call a trauma whisper. And that is the suffering. And the trauma whisper has three thoughts. And thought number one is that I don't matter. Mm. Thought number two is that I am not lovable. And the thought number three is the world is not to be trusted. And that is the suffering that comes from Oppression, stigmatization, and trauma. It sits in the frontal cortex and gets activated 
gets activated in within people as their anxiety or fear uh, moves through their body. And that trauma whisper is really what I saw Carl Rogers trying to sit with. And he believed that if you sat with them deeply, mm. that people would move. If you gave them positive regard and a deep understanding, they would move. I actually think you can actually guide it a little more than just sit with so that's the, that's the main difference that sounds like you're describing is, is that rather than simply, as Rogers would suggest, is that you sit with an individual in their place and for them to have the, the opportunity to choose what they do next, what it sounds like you're describing is, is what MI does is says, there is a way out of here, you know. And this is, this is where we play with the ideas of complex reflections. But I, I, I have abandoned those words. I'm using gentle guesses. When you start to gently guess what the person is going through and what they're experiencing through that empathetic understanding, you can move and guide the conversation much more differently than paraphrasing or staying with someone. And just in trying to kind of set the context of the world that you're in, um, in the work that you do, you mentioned, uh, a lot of group work primarily. Um, it, what, I guess, what are some of the things that you are helping people kind of, um, that you are helping people or you're helping to guide people towards, I guess. Well, <clears throat> thank you. Sebastian, you set me up to another beautiful concept, which is if you believe that right in the frontal cortex is the trauma whisper, and another part of the brain is the whisper of hopes and dreams. Hmm. Now, I have developed a cheat sheet for the hopes and dreams. Now, in MI conversations and in motivational interviewing conversations, people talk about values. I've gone beyond values a little bit to what I call the core needs or the core yearnings. And they're made up of four things that people deeply want power and control over the destiny of their lives. That two, they want to love and to be loved. That three, they want to have a purpose. And four, they want to belong. They want to belong to family, a tribe, a community, a church, a 12-step meeting, whatever it might be, mm. some support group, that they have a yearning to be part of social capital. And so all of my work is to try to help people move towards that deep yearning, which, again, I call the whisper of hopes and dreams. I'm shifting the language from change talk to hopes and dreams because I feel like it's more palatable to the general public because I don't think change talk is, you know, I think it's our language that separates us. And so when I think about the trauma whisper and I think about the other side, which is the whisper of hopes and dreams, now you have the ambivalence. Now you have the internal conflict of the human soul. 
And the ability of the worker to hold that with great empathy and to uh, feel it and smell it and be able to convey it uh, quiets down the trauma whispers so that the actual whisper of power and control or the whisper of hopes and dreams can come forward. And that is, and, and if, if I have it correctly, and I could be completely wrong, I'm 71 and I drink way too much coffee, so I can get this completely wrong. But if I have this correct, then what happens is that we're guiding towards this belief that that whisper of hopes and dreams exists. Mm. We're not waiting for the value to pop out. We believe that it exists. And so, therefore, we're much more efficient, if you will, because we can hear it in the conversation. So when a person says, I don't want to quit drinking, but I don't want my kid to have this disease, you're hearing love. Mm. Yeah, it's it's such an interesting way of how you are trans translating familiar terms from motivation into what sounds like an, an effort to make it more accessible to more people. And the, even that idea of the trauma whisper and the hopes and dreams whisper as, as a way of understanding, you know what, that's what can, that's how ambivalence can manifest. It's these two, two essences or two internal responses to life circumstances. And, it sounds like part of what you're describing is, is that as a practitioner, you were informed about this. You recognize, you recognize the whisper of the trauma. You recognize the whisper of the hopes and dreams within this individual. And first of all, you can tolerate that, that you're not, your writing reflex hasn't been fired trying to calm one and amplify the other. It's going, yeah, yeah, of course, there's this here and there's this pain. But you're able to recognize the, both the pain and the hope. This leads me to the conversation about discord. Mm. I don't think there's anything such as, such as discord between the, the person we're serving and, the, the, and ourselves. Mm. I think the discord is between our head and our heart. I don't think there's any resistance. I think there's people in their trauma whisper that yearn for a deep, understanding mm. an empathetic understanding and that the trauma whisper is a protector mm-hmm. and so when people are argumentative or harsh or judgmental of us or pushing against us that it is only them speaking to protecting themselves from the suffering that they receive So you're, you're inviting me, now my head's going to a couple of different places, some of it aside from my practice of motivation. Do you? I can, it, part of me is identifying from another, another place that idea that, that the sound of your trauma is, is an echo of something that happened that no one listened to and continues to pop up asking the world, can you hear me yet? Can you hear me yet? Can you hear me yet? And it sounds like what you're saying is that the opportunity exists, whether it is motivation or any other approach. It's it's simply recognizing this thing we called resistance or this thing we called discord 
is the sound of a voice that still needs heard by a carer who understands, who values and respects the needs of those individuals uh, in response to their pain. And, and you, when you say that, it's, it's so deeply yearned that people get madder and madder over time. That they, when they get pushed, and I'm not saying they shouldn't be mandated to go, but your role as a worker, as a, as a person, is sitting with this person, is to understand that that pushback, that discord, that resistance is not anything but that whisper of not being heard. And that trauma and oppression and stigmatization definitely protects people. They wall them off, they stonewall, they push, they do whatever they have to do to not allow any more shame. It seems, it seems like listeners might use what you're offering here in a few different ways, mm-hmm. uh, whether, whether someone wants to hold on to the idea that, well, discord is a relational experience. There's, there's one person on one end and another person on another end, and there's something happening between them that is... Um, there's tension, there's a fracture in a relationship, whether it's a new relationship or, a, or an established one. Um, others might hear what you're offering and say, okay, there's, some, there's a disconnect, not necessarily between two people, but between two very important forces within the practitioner. Yes. And, but I, I guess what, what, I, what I feel like I'm, get, I'm, I'm getting from what you're describing here regardless of how you like would word for word define discord or resistance is, is a way of um, I guess understanding another person's response or pushback or reaction to somebody who is either harshly or gently trying to compel another person to do something that they're not ready or interested in doing and in the origins of that pushback and that response, whether it's a passive shutdown response or an angry lashing out response or anything in between or in any other direction, it, there's a protective element to whatever that response is. And, and what you're offering, it seems is a way for us to like, how do we understand this as a practitioner so we can remain helpful Well, thank you for that first. I think we need to stop training people to deal with resistance. Because there's no such thing. In every MI training that I observe, there's a lesson around, let's deal with the resistance statements. Resistance statements are a hook that the practitioner feels at a moment. And if they can breathe and take a moment, they can get back to the essence of the heart. Mm. But if they're in their thoughts, they're stuck. And I'll call the thoughts the pesky ego. And the heart is the place where empathetic understanding comes from. And that's why I said the discord is between the head and the heart. 
and that we're not training people, that, that the definition that I have for motivational interviewing is that we change people through the heart, then through the mind. And we don't, and, and we try to make sure that what happens when somebody says something, we sit up here going, what, can I, what am I going to say? What is going to be my reflection? What is going to, and instead of going, let me take a breath right now. And let me just, what's it like to be this person? Mm. Then convey that with a gentle guess, not just a paraphrase, not just repeating, Mm. not reflective listening. Sounds like you're upset. I'm talking about that sort of gentle sense. And the people who are suffering the most are getting less care from us in an empathetic way because they hook us, because they want power and control over the destiny of their lives, which makes perfect sense because it is part of the whisper of their need for power and control. It's part of that whisper of hopes and dreams. So now you've opened the door to a world that I very much am interested in, which is when you describe empathy, part of what I'm what I'm understanding when I'm working with people and, and teaching and in my practice, it's recognizing that for me empathy is an experience. It's not something I do, it's an experience I have. So and when you're describing the difference between the head and the heart and the use of reflective listening, that when we drop down into our heart, drop down into the, the body, the emotions that we experience below our neck. The, what it sounds like you're describing is what's it like when you take that breath and notice what's happening in your heart, what's happening in your body, and to consider this feeling that you're having in your body is a form of communication from them about how they are feeling right now. Yes. And that the reflective statement that you offer is this is really sore or mm-hmm. you, this is really frightening for you. And the reason why I'm saying that is because the reason why I'm this gentle guess that you describe, this gentle guess is coming from when I breathe and notice my experience. I am noticing fear in me and I'm understanding it to be your fear because I have nothing to be afraid of. And then we're partners. Yes. Right? Because we just partner up on the level of empathetic understanding. We have created a way of connecting. And it took the practitioner to get out of all of their thought process and to enter into the spirit of another human being. If I was you, I'd be feeling. If I was you, I'd be thinking. And now I'm going to convey that in a gentle way. Beyond the words you said. And uh, I'm going to gently move and guide towards the whisper of hopes and dreams. Stephen, one thing I'm curious about, you shared with us your age, very generous of you. And obviously uh, you're a very uh, experienced clinician who's uh, gathered a lot of wisdom over the years. Uh, I'm wondering what, like how your practice and approach with people who are stuck or who are angry, who are, you know, 
unhealthy, whatever phrase you want to say, like how has your experience working with people in the various places that they come to see you, how has that shifted? Whether it's a shift that's happened with it because of MI or the trainings that you've done or what have you, or, or just, you know, just for some other purposes, but, but what, how would you contrast the things you used to do versus what you do now and what you find to be really helpful? I didn't trust empathy. I now believe that it is uh, much more of a medicine and a medication for the human soul than I ever, ever believed before. And I've watched it. And so if you talk to me about my support groups, they have no problem centered. Everybody has come to develop empathy and compassion. But the belief is that if you give away empathy to another, you'll develop self-empathetic talk. That people need to heal by giving away kindness, gentleness, and empathy. And that's so what I've been trying to do is to develop support circles. And there are 130 people that come and see me each week. And all they work on is the gymnasium of empathy to develop a state of compassion. So my belief is you if you do empathy over and over and over, you create a state of compassion. And that state of compassion releases the trauma whisper from protecting. Mm. And then people start moving towards their dreams. Mm. And so what's made me much different is that I've gone from believing that if you're kind with people, that would be enough. But I see that empathy is so important skill, and it can't be confused. It can't be passed away. It can't be part of ours. It has to be separated out. It has to rise to the surface. We know that it is essential for the engagement of the human soul. So by coming to this uh, empathy gymnasium, I love it, and um, it sounds like part of what you're doing is you're first of all helping people consider the prospect that there's this thing, this entity, this experience called empathy, and that you then are guiding them towards recognizing the, their experience of it so that they can then do something with it. Which then it sounds like once you recognize the empathy, your manifestation of it in your treatment of other people is is the compassion, how you treat other people is the compassion. And that, that alongside of that is the recognizing that see that guy that's in your head that's trauma that's giving you such a hard time behind what he's saying is the intention of keeping you safe yes and if you can be empathetic with the sound of that pain that that he gets heard he lowers the need to protect you in that way from now on and that opens the door then for the relationship with, on the other side of the ambivalence, which is the hopes and the dreams. Yes. And that then and you then, can... And the motivational, interv- motivational interviewing then is the engagement of that process mm. of the trauma whisper. Wow. Right? And then it's guiding towards guessing what the other part is. Now you're holding the ambivalence, which is what I call phase two, which is heightening the ambivalence, the conflict between these two. Tr- and then you're you can actually hear the whisper 
of the hopes and dreams. Because if you, you're not looking for a hundred values. You're looking for four things that are going to rise to the surface that are so essential to the human being. And now I can easily hear them. I can hear the whisper of hopes and dreams. And we need to train people. We need to uh, train practitioners and doctors, people to hear why would somebody take care of themselves? They have some greater need. And it's not within themselves often. It's actually without. It's, it's in the world. It's in the context of social capital. So I, I, I guess I'm also wondering when somebody gets it wrong or somebody, not, I don't know about right or wrong, probably not the right way to frame it, but when someone approaches another client or patient or however you want to call the other person receiving help um, and approaches it in a way that perhaps de-emphasizes the importance of empathy and compassion or, you know, doesn't kind of recognize a response that comes from this place of the trauma whisper, as you said, like what, what's the downside to that? I guess, where, where do things go wrong and break down? Well, I think that leads us to Sebastian, the definition of shame. Because if we are not present with people, then they go back, right? Isn't it back to the trauma whisper that says, right? That I don't matter. Right in this moment, I don't matter. So when a practitioner gets it wrong, what activates right from the cell to the brain is that trauma whisper. That I don't matter. I'm not lovable. The world is not to be trusted. Now, that develops shame. And shame has three categories to it. One, that it is uh, it has no empathy for self or others. Two, it isolates us. Because the trauma whisper is the safety is to be isolated. And three is a conflict of values. I'm, be, I'm behaving this way, and I'd like to be this. That's what shame does. Conflict values uh, creates isolation and creates a lack of empathy for self and others. Now, if you're giving people empathy regularly as a medication, they, they start to feel that energy. They start expecting that of themselves. And that helps them lower the trauma whisper. When you get it wrong, can you be humble enough to give a heartfelt apology? When you see it doesn't land well, which is actually part of empathetic understanding. It's felt sense, conveying it, and watching how it lands. It has three components to it. And when it lands poorly, or somebody pushes back quickly, or they, I always tell people, think about two words. When you hear the words, yes, but. When you hear that with those two words, you're, the, the person you're trying to serve is being pushed too fast. They're being guided too much. They're being directed too much. 
And so you pull back because what they yearn for is to be heard and believed and helped with the, that they have figured out a way to protect themselves based on what's happened to them in their journey. And I want to be clear here. I'm not, I'm not just focused on trauma. I'm focused on trauma, oppression, and stigmatization. I think that any one of them has the same reaction to the cell structure. And this gets us into the issue of diversity and cultural humility. And uh, we have to understand how all of those play out in the treatment room or in the support room or the caring space. So the expertise that the practitioner is endeavoring to bring to this, this encounter, is that awareness of yes. the complexity of the human being, of the human relationship, and the impact of, of events on the development of an individual's sense of self and their interactions with the world around them? And what are the healing properties of a human relationship that, that the practitioner can then endeavour to create for this individual to be healed from the inside. Um, it's, it's, I've written down here the idea of therapeutic parenting and that, that positive regard and recognising that this is the only reason why this human being is in your company is because something has happened to them that has thrown them off centre and mm. they haven't been able to repair it for themselves and they're either being invited to or being encouraged or being told you need the help of other people. And I guess one of the challenges is to recognise is that for an awful lot of people who come into our company, it's recognising that they're, they're, they're first of all coming into the company of the very thing that hurt them, which is somebody else. Yes. And for an awful lot of them, it's, the, it's an adult mm. Mm. who for an awful lot of people were the, were the perpetrators of these original traumas that are continuing to vo be voiced up in their lives. And it sounds like that, 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 that what we as practitioners are, you're inviting us to do is to, to learn and understand that. And I guess mm -hmm. that's the piece that I'm now curious about then, Stephen, is how do you help uh, a practitioner who, like yourself, 30-odd years ago, went to a training and was told, you know what, this is, no, you, that's good there, and here's some more to learn. So how do you help your uh, when you're working with your practitioners and for the for the people who are listening to this podcast what are some of the things that you would that you would offer them that may invite them to expand their awareness that that them will and and encourage and support them to grow as helping practitioners when they go back and out, out in the helping world Well I I have uh, three learning communities a week with uh, a dozen people. And all we do is practice empathetic understanding. As you, as, as um, you will both know, I've done a podcast on the issue of listening. I want people to listen what empathetic understanding sounds like. Um, I, I think it's the missing ingredient. We don't slow down long enough. We make an assumption that people know how to drop from the head to the heart. That that 18 inches is so critical in the training and support of clinicians. Because without it, it does harm. 
it activates the trauma whisper. We have a choice between activating the trauma whisper or the whisper of hopes and dreams. And we, and if the better we get, the better we're going to be able to do that. And I do think it's it's in learning communities. It's sitting with small companies where they don't want people to do case review anymore. They want them to do what is the conversation look like. Uh, we need fidelity in the field of you know, respecting that people come into the field that they're going to be trained and coached and mentored to become clearly capable of empathy and understanding. It's going to change their lives also. It's going to make their lives better. It, I can tell you that people are less burnt out when they're focused on empathy, when they're focused on empathetic understanding with the dream, not just the, the empathy. I hope that makes sense. But with catching the dream, with catching the whisper of the dream of power and love and purpose and belonging. It's there. And it's our job to hear the whisper and catch it. And then wonder with people, what do you want to do with that? Mm. Where do you go with that? But it's such a compliment when you sit with a, a person you're serving and they have gone beyond the trauma whisper to tell you what they hope for. There can't be a greater gift and a compliment in the business that we serve. That somebody is dreaming out loud with you. And your choice of the word whisper, I imagine, is purposeful too, in that, you know, whisper is obviously something that is maybe barely audible and it comes from a place in somebody where they're, you know, they're not quite sure if their traumatic experiences or their hopes and dreams will, uh, that the other person will respect them and hold them and hear them and affirm them. And uh, so I imagine part of, yeah. Oh, go ahead. The shame gets so great, uh, Sebastian, that, you know, that people get so isolated and they spend all of their lives protecting themselves, whether it's alcoholism or drug addiction or, those are all protections. Obsessive compulsive behavior is all protections. Psychosis is protection. You know, and shame wants people to stay there so that they can be safe mm. and secure that nothing will happen. So they they drink themselves to death. They put a needle in their arms. They don't really care. As a 19-year-old said to me, you know, I don't want to die from this, but if I do, I don't matter. I mean, that is the whisper of Trump. I don't matter. I don't want to. Mm. I have some hope. I have some dreams. What's rising for me here, Stephen, is a couple of things. First of all, that the impact, given the fact that we're exploring empathy and the experience of this pain and of this trauma, that if we don't recognize it, then chances are we're going to act out of it 
or yes. we're going to we're going to do the very thing that that this client's behaviour represents, which is I'm trying to get away from it or deal with it or cope with it, and I guess it in some ways that it's um, that the temptation is that or the consequence will be is that the relationship between the trauma whisperer and the hopes and dreams whisperer will be manifest in the relationship between the practitioner and the client. And that yeah, the, 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 two, the two sounds will be repeated in the room. Whereas yeah. for this to be heard in a different way, that that the practitioner isn't going to become the trauma whisperer in the conversation <laughs> or right. isn't going to become the the trauma or the hopes and dreams whisperer. It's going to be going, I hear you and I hear yeah. you too. Yeah. And that you, you, that they give they give voice to these these whispers, so that they're not they're no yeah. longer a whisper; they're actually spoken words, spoken right. and understood, so that the individual the themselves. Get, right, the safer they get, the more that spoken word comes alive, right? So the the I think I guess what I'm curious about is what was it that, what was it that helped you learn to feel able to sit with these feelings without becoming these feelings. Well, so that's that, what I meant by that's what I meant earlier when I said you know you can experience the suffering, and it's a you can react to it. Mm. So how did you, you know, learn not to? How did that? I guess yeah, exactly. Well, and, and that was the issue is that I learned that if I could breathe and relax and be, be intentional, then mm. I'm going to my heart. If I was you, I'd be feeling. If I was you, I'd be thinking and then I could gently put that out as a guess and watch how it lands mm. and, I, and if I'm not doing that I'll, I, there are three things that I think that you know, practitioners need to be aware of one is that they do unsolicited advice through their questions through their, that they have lots of ways of doing unsolicited advice like saying to this 19 year old oh I, you know, I think you matter you know, that, that's unsolicited advice. You're not thinking correctly right now. That, that's hard stuff. The second is that we ask a series of questions. And I now tell people that if you ask three questions in a row, you've missed the opportunity. You're just trying to be curious in your brain. And curiosity, your curiosity means that you're in your pesky ego. You're not in your heart. So three questions in a row. Now, I realize there are forms and all of that stuff, but when you're doing motivational interviewing, it's not three questions in a row. That might be an assessment. That might be something else. But I think when you're doing motivational interviewing, you really want to reach for more empathy than questions. I think you want that three-to-one ratio. I think you want... And if you can, you want to get seven to one. You want to, because you want them to have the medication. Even if they drift away and never change a behavior, they had in a moment in time. They had a moment in time where somebody heard them as deeply as possible within the time we had. What a gift. Well, Stephen, you've certainly given us a lot to think about in terms of these concepts of uh, not just discord and resistance, which are some of the kind of 
older, I guess, language uh, words that are used in MI is, or even some of the newer, uh, newer versions of them when we're talking about Discord, but also other concepts and things related to your, uh, your practice and your, um, your lessons learned over the years that I'm sure many, many clients have, have taught you about the head and the heart and these whispers that you're referring to and the importance of empathy, certainly. Um, what we're going to do now is we'll, we'll begin to close uh, for, we'll, we'll start to, uh, we'll, we'll close as we often do. And then there will be a role play, uh, experience that you all can listen to, um, as the, the end point, as the ending of the, of the episode itself. But, uh, Stephen, one question that we ask all our guests is, uh, if we were to look out into the future a little bit for you and think about something that's on the horizon, professional or personal, uh, what's something that you'd want to, to share with our audience about? Well, there's two, two things on the horizon in terms of concrete things. One is my, um, continual, uh, search to try to allow people to hear what I'm trying to talk about rather than talk about it. So the podcast that I've done, which is uh, Conversations in Compassion on all the platforms that you can get a podcast onto. Um, and also I'm finishing a small book uh, this year that's uh, called Empathy, Motivation, and Love in Action. Um, and uh, those are the sort of two things that are on the top. But probably more importantly is, um, is that in the United States and specifically the state of Maine, where I am, um, there's an epidemic um, from opiate use. And uh, I spent my extra time uh, founding an organization called Dignity um, and bringing dignity to every conversation. And, uh, and that's a place where I've taken motivational interviewing into the, um, hopefully into the streets and the community and uh, I'm trying to embody it in a, community organizing way um, around a particular social problem. Yeah, it sounds like you've really worked hard ever since your introduction to Motivation Event to, to create, I suppose, what Miller himself describes as the being of Motivation Event. It sounds like that the, the gymnasiums that you talk about are that opportunity to be MA and to be the caring, but but you're also saying that you're taking it out into the, the into the community and on, on literally onto the streets to to people who have perhaps uh, experienced most trauma and isolation uh, for uh, in our, our in our communities. And you know what? It's, it'll be really interesting to, to to get a chance to read that book, Stephen, when it becomes available. And certainly would would be keen if if uh, when it becomes available, let us know and we'll we'll share that with with the audience as well. And I guess it, there's a lot in what you've said to us today and I've no doubt there will be plenty of people who will be curious about the terminal, terminology that, you, that you're, you've created but also the, the, the direction in which that terminology is pointing. So if people have questions after listening to this episode, first of all, would you be happy for them to contact you? And if you would, how can they go about doing that? Well, I have a, I have a website uh, that's... Uh, Health Education and Training Institute in Portland, Maine, uh, and uh, it's uh, www.hetimain.org, 
Um, and there's a ton of trainers and coding and simulated clients and uh, the work we're doing. Um, just on that note, uh, the federal government, uh, in its own beautiful wisdom, decided to call us up and give us money to try to simulate uh, motivational interviewing into the field of addiction. Um, and uh, we've been honored by uh, that uh, without even asking the grant uh, for them to say, we would like to help you see if we can get this into the fidelity of the work. Not training people, but the fidelity of the work. So we're honored by that too. And there's a way to, there, there'd be a way to contact you through that website? Yes, <clears throat> that would be great. Okay, wonderful. Okay. Um, well, like I said before, we will, uh, we will close the kind of question answer interview portion now. And, uh, in a, in a few moments, if you keep listening to the episode, you will uh, hear the recording of our, uh, of our role plays as uh, Steven demonstrates some of the ways he, uh, puts these ideas into action. So, uh, we'll, we'll say thank you now we said thank you before. We'll say thank you again later, Stephen. But thanks so much for offering your uh, your wisdom and your ideas uh, with us and with our audience. Thank you. Fantastic, Stephen. And just a reminder that when if anyone wants to contact us, our Twitter is at Change Talking. Seb's individual personal one is SGKFROMNC. SGK from MNC, and I'm at Glenn Hines. Our Instagram is Talking to Change Podcast. Our Facebook is Talking to Change. And for any questions or uh, suggestions or information on training, it, our email is podcast at glennhines.com. Thank you. Thank you for uh, having a conversation with me. Um, is there something you're thinking about that uh, you'd love to change but just haven't been able to more recently? What is What comes to my mind, first of all, Stephen, is, is that I... Um, from time to time, I'm asked as a, an MI practitioner trainer to offer interventions to mandated clients through the social services, through family services, who have been given the option. Generally, the option is, look, let, just let us take our kid, your kids off you and keep them, or else yeah. let's see if we can do something about this. Um, but the thing is, we're really concerned about some of the ways you're doing things, in particular, we would like to see you be willing to acknowledge our concerns about why, we, and that led us to take your children into care in the first place. That in itself is not a problem. I, I, I meet with the families and I do the work, and everything's great. Where I where I have this real difficulty, and it's not just in this in this world, but it's showing up now for me is is putting my practice down on paper. To, yeah. to give to someone else. So as I've been processing this recently, it is, I'm asking myself, is it because I feel like I'm being tested? Is it, is it like a school thing where I'm, going to, where I'm concerned I'm going to fail? And from what you're saying, from, I guess I'm, I'm doing it, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, is this part of my trauma whisperer telling me you're going to get into wild trouble here, Glenn? And I'm actually considering, I'm not going to do this anymore. This is too much, like, this is too much hard work. And it's the internal experience that's the hard work for me. Yeah, you can you can feel the comfort of sitting with a family. Mm. You can feel the comfort of being of service to them. 
But then when it becomes something somebody could judge outside of that treatment room, it, there's something that happens inside you. Yeah, that's you it. Get, yeah. You get scared. Mm, that's it. Mm. And you're in your mind going, this is too much. I love the work with people. And I'm struggling with that judgment that's just outside of the door of my office. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... That's what it is. It's, it's the perception of the, the concern that um, that there's too much of a there's a risk. There's a genuine risk to well, what what, what could happen. Yeah, you you're going to write down the problem, hmm. and that people are going to judge this family, and you don't really want them to judge the family. No, it, it, you know what? It's not even that. It's that they're going to judge me as a practitioner. They're going to judge me in my in my report. And they're going to judge that you didn't really tend to the work, or you, something was wrong. And it, it gets down to the, the four or five sentences that you have to write in the narrative that you're worried about. And you're really you're like, I'm going to give up helping these people. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to give up this avenue of helping. And it, and it's not because you don't want to help them. Mm. It's because you don't want to be judged. Yeah, and even more specifically, it's the pain of being judged. Right. Right. And, the, and, and not only you, but everybody being judged for the quality of their work because of your writings. You know what? I'd love I'd love to tell you that that's what it is. Is that um, I'm as uh, at, at that point I'm as accomplished to go. Oh my God, I'm going to let everybody down. It's not. It's not that. That's not that uh, sophisticated. It's I'm going to get into trouble. Right. And when and, and you know what that's like <laughs> to get into trouble. Um. I rem I guess that it's it's a I don't I don't know what it's like to get into trouble because I haven't been in trouble in a very very long time. This is this it's is this this, this is the thing. This is this is about a this is a memory of something. Yeah, and you know that. Well, I'm learning that, and that's that's why part of me is considering. You know what? Right. Do I need do I do I need to open this door and go and look at this so that I can do yeah. this work? And you know what I could do is just stop doing this work. You can feel that the world is not to be trusted. Somewhere out there, the world is not to be trusted. Yes. On the other hand, and on the other hand, you really do want to be of service to these families. Yes. Yes. And the best decision you made is maybe there are other ways. Maybe I can go train the people who work with these, but I don't need to be writing the documentation. Yes. Yeah. If it's going to, so, if, it, if it's going to be like this every time, I can't be bothered. 
And you have this, you have this whisper inside you that says, maybe if I stayed with it, I could get over it. I can move through it. It's interesting that you say that because before before I came up to record today, I was down visiting my mum and I was t- I was telling her about it, and um, and what she said to me was, "It's like you're waiting to find out what the right how to give them the right answer, and that's what you're struggling with. You're trying to work out what the right answer is for them, and once you find out the right answer, it'll come easy to you. And I recognise that that very often during my my school career, my education, my, my college career, that what was difficult was what's, what's, what answer did they want me to give them? And if I could understand what that was, I could give it to them. The hardest bit wasn't the answer, was finding out what's the right, what's, what's, what does this question mean for them? Um, and that's probably the, the voice that is going, do you know what? Do I need this? Do I need to be going through this every time I start something new? At 55 years of age, do I need it? And, and that's where you are. Do I need it? Do I need this kind of tension? Because, and, and then there's another part of you that says, if I could find what they want, hmm. then I, I could do this. Then I can do that. So what's your next step? Let it go or find the answer? Before talking to you, it was let it go. It was let it go. Now, again, having spoken to my mum today, I recognise, all oh, right, enough. That's probably what it is. It is that I'm trying to ascertain what's... This is outside of my comfort zone in the sense that while I'm a trained social worker, I, I didn't spend very much time in family and child care. I didn't... I've spent most of my time in mental health and addictions. So writing court reports wasn't part of my long-term development. And here I am being asked to write court reports, and I was like, oh. And uh, Hmm. I guess what I could do is go, you know what? If I want to do this, I I need to continue to develop it. Now, what I have done... In the last two occasions I've done it, I have a social work supervisor who is from a childcare background, and I go and say help to him, and he helps me do it. And you know, got this report done, and it'll be done, it'll be sent, and it'll be it'll be professional. But what's interesting for me is this 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 internal experience that just left me feeling really uncomfortable for quite a few days in advance of fin- finalizing this report, and I just thought, I wonder what. Am I would sound like if I talked about it here today? You did something very bold. You asked for help. Mm. In an effort to have power and control over this uncomfortable feeling, you went and asked for help. And it worked. Yeah, that that part of me, you know, he's 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 probably twenty years old, twenty five years old, thirty years old. This this distress part of me is forty five years old. 
<laughs> you know. So the the part of me that I, I remember learning to ask for help, and um, so I'm much better at at times when I'm having difficulties to go and ask for help than I would have. There would have been a time where I, I wouldn't have had anywhere to go to ask. And it feels like that's the duality. And today you've just told us that you've asked two people for help. Mm. Your mom, mm. a social worker supervisor. Mm. And you have a plan. You, you have a way out of this struggle if you want to take it. You don't have to. That's what you're saying. You don't have to. But you have a plan. Yeah, the way out is not to go in. That's one plan. Yeah. There's another yeah. one that says, yeah. ask for help. Yes. Well, the other, one is, the other one is go in and ask for help on the way in, during and on the way out. And, um, fi- and, and find the answers. Yes. And, and like I have on other situations. In yeah. The yeah. And I, I, I just, as we finish up, I just want to say, uh, the, I'd love to hear what you finally choose to do. Mm. Yeah, what's nice is that that I don't have to decide today. That's that's the main thing. It's that I think what's what's helpful about just what we've talked about already is is that the walking away is a valid and reasonable thing for me to do, um, and one that I don't have to be annoyed or frustrated with myself about doing. If I was to change my mind, that I have the resources in place, which is, I know some of the people I can ask to help me learn to frame the answers that fit within a court report for me to feel confident to just get on with it. Translating what I already do into a new language, which is court reports. Um, yeah. So, thank you. And And then be of service. To those families. Yeah, it's 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 you know what's what's interesting is that, that I now recognise that, you know, very often when I'm doing my own teaching, it's it's recognising that that when I'm teaching people, I'm saying to them, look, the difficulties that are arising in our lives are there's different ways of understanding. One of them is is that they, this is your teacher has arrived. What's yeah. the opportunity for your growth? And yeah. I'm hearing myself recognise this yeah. this 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 discomfort is. An invitation for me to change direction yeah. from the, the traditional direction. Now, the traditional direction has got me here, which is fine, and I'm doing it rightly. But there's an opportunity for me to go in another direction, which is going to take effort. Mm. And um, but will has the opportunity to expand my ability to help more people. Yeah. Thank you. Hmm. Thank you. All right, guys. Great. Thank you both. Uh, just to check in, as we often do with this, um, what the experience is like for each of you. Glenn, how about you first? Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting one because like when, we, when we began to consider the role play, and again, Stephen says, look, let's do real play. And as, as, as we did when I previously did a role play, real play with Robin, it was the thing that was on currently present for me so I just went with that and so this is this is actually real I am writing a report for a court and it has I have been uncomfortable 
<laughs> in the background, it has been taking up an awful lot of space in my emotional world. And I am genuinely so looking forward to finishing this report this evening. And I can already feel the weight lifting off my shoulders with the fact that this report will be done in a way. Mm-hmm. What was interesting about the conversation with, with Stephen was just how much space he created for me and just the way you reframed a couple of things and just the, 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 you talked about the courage and the, um, my desire to be helpful. It, 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 uh, yeah, it just meant that, that, it could, that I was given the space to step back and to think about this and then notice what was happening as a consequence of not having to decide, just verbalising this is what it is. This is why. This is why it's happening, and for it to feel, you know, relatively safe for me to have that. And and there were a few occasions where it felt like I needed to correct the, the, your interpretations or your reflections, and that was fine. You know, it was. Um, but as I, as we got to the end, it really was. It started to crystallize for me. You know, these are these are choices that. I can leave here with that whatever direction I decide to go in next will be okay for me to do, uh, but there is a choice. Yeah, well, I want to hear what you have to say, Stephen. Just to echo the the um, those moments where the correction occurred. You know, Stephen offered a a reflection or a gentle guess, and it uh, it wasn't what your experience was, and you offered a correction to it. And that we, we talk about that a lot when we're training in, uh, people to do this work. And um, those are really important moments because, you know, uh, Stephen, you could have, you know, dug your heels in and held your ground and said, no, actually, Glenn, I think that's what it is. And, and then that would have been um, an invitation for discord, certainly. But um, you sort of heard Glenn's uh, correction there and, and, and incorporated it into your understanding of, of his of what he was going through but um Stephen how about you how, how was the experience uh on your end well, there's a couple of things that I point out and that that also where people I think could make big mistakes I mean you said one of them which is that you get attached to an idea and I have a phrase that I use a lot which is if you hold the right position you'll destroy the working alliance um so you know, I, I really believe in that phrase. So when he's saying no, I, my job is to walk alongside him, you know, and not not buy into that. The other thing I wanted to say is there's, there's a pitfall, and that is that people would get curious about um, the trauma whisper. He has a trauma whisper. And I did not get curious about it. Mm. I moved beyond it. Mm. Which, you know, which, which is that he said, you know, I've had this for a long time. This is, and this is my way out. And this is, you know what I mean? And he, there's a lot there. And even his mother knew that about him. So, you know, he was, he was telling us about the trauma whisper that the world is not to be trusted unless I'm already skillful and know the answer to the, you know, that the world can be judgmental. Mm. And, uh, but I didn't stop there. I went to the other part, which is that, you know, you want to be helpful to people. You mm. want to have power and control of your life. You want to, you know, you could see me grabbing a hold of those, the, what I call the whisper of hopes and dreams. Mm. I, 
you know, I'm probably known for the phrase in the motivational interviewing community, but we meet people where they dream. We mm. don't meet people where they're at. Now, at is the beginning phase, but that's not where we're going to stop. Mm. We're going to meet people where they dream. And and again, that's sort of a demonstration of it. Yeah, and what, and, and what was interesting as you were describing that, and certainly I experienced that when you were helping me, is that for many people they will recognize the description of the echoing of the, the hopes and dreams whisper as the sound yeah. of affirmations that yeah. you heard, you, you, you recognized my pain. Yeah. And that's where the writing reflex generally kicks in where you're going to try and help me yeah. not feel like that. Whereas yeah. what you did was you simply took on the other side and go, you know what, and, and you care and you want the best for people and you are, you know, you're committed and you're courageous. And, mm-hmm. and so the two things were true. Yeah. At exactly the same time, without one of, but where your focus went to was the the efforts that exist mm-hmm. within me to mm-hmm. live with and deal with and tolerate and work with this trauma mm-hmm. whisperer. Mm-hmm. Well, and and then what happened is that you're walking away with the duality. I'm not. We're not walking away with a plan. Mm. And what I think is so important in motivational interviewing is that we give people the respect to hold the conflict and not try to resolve it. And we, we spend a lot of time trying to get to the plan or get a plan out of people when you're walking away with two plans. Yeah. And they're very concrete. Mm. They're very concrete. You know, and if I was writing a treatment plan, I would have to write two plans. Mm. So there's, t- there's still two options for me. I haven't, I'm still describing yeah. ambivalence about yeah. which direction is going to be the right solution for me. And that ambivalence is normal. Mm. It's, you know, we explore it. Maybe it'll get resolved, but you'll resolve it. I don't need and, to have the resolution. It's not my ego. Right. And, and maybe that's a, that is, is sort of a, maybe an unspoken lesson in this is within this concept of discord, uh, a way that a well-intentioned practitioner might uh, induce discord is when they are in the presence of ambivalence as Glenn was and still is about this decision of his is, uh, is that you did not take a position. You did not, say, and not, not that it's always a bad thing to be curious, like what are the pros and cons of this? And what are the pros and cons of that? Or some decisional balance method or whatever it might be, but, but to insert prematurely insert direction or your preference uh, is something that was mm-hmm. not, that's not what Glenn was, was needing in, in this conversation that you all had together. It was to kind of concretize for him, what are the what what are the two doors and or what what is the door? What are the two options? Go in or or to to not. Um, you know, I, I was thinking too about what you said uh, as far as the pitfall and there's a pitfall that people get curious about the trauma whisperer and it it struck me uh, you know one of the things that you said, Stephen, or a reflection or a gentle guess that you used was you said you know what that's like. Mm-hmm when Glenn was talking about the, um, the judgment, the pain of it, getting in trouble. 
And you said, you know what that's like. And that was a moment. It was an interesting moment because that was one where it could have led, but it was in a way it was a bit of an invitation. Glenn could say, yeah, well, let me tell you, uh, I, <laughs> let me tell you about, here's my pain. Let me show it to you. Right. And, uh, and he didn't, and that, that was okay. He kind of stayed with where he was at. And you also didn't keep kind of at that with, you know, tell me what was you know the most painful thing for you or something like that, which, which kind of speaks to this model of yours of staying more focused on the, the hopes and dreams side of it, which, which is where you, where you held. Um, question, Stephen, I, I was just wondering about, about discord in this conversation. And, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a conversation where at least as an outsider looking into the experience between the two of you, there did not appear to be pushing back hostility, you know, passivity, you know, whatever the, the some of these kind of behavioral signs anyway. And, and just wondering, cause you're, you're offering a different, some different notions with this concept of discord. So I wonder if you could speak to discord as it relates to this conversation that you and Glenn had. Well, in this case, I did not create more discord. I could have, but I did not. And the discord was really only these moments where you, you both pointed it out, where he said no, and he started to change it. And I didn't get attached to an idea because I was in my heart and not my head. My pesky ego would then be to, well, I want to drive it towards the trauma whisperer. Or I want to drive it towards a solution, all right? Do you know what I mean? I want to drive it. That's the pesky ego. And it does, it, it comes up with a series of questions or unsolicited advice. Uh, and you didn't feel a lot of questions from this. In fact, I think there were two, uh, one in the beginning and one in the middle. Um, most of it was gentle guessing. Um, if I was you, I'd be thinking. So I wanted to state you don't, there's no such thing as discord or resistance from a client or a patient, a person you serve. If you can hold that space that says all they need is for me to be empathetic and go for an empathetic understanding that will find some accuracy in me understanding what it's like to be Glenn, what it's like to be this person. And I could create the discord, or the discord could be created by a larger system, but it's not. It, it, it's not mine. It's mine to hold the, to to hear it, feel it, and understand it, but not get attached to ah, that's resistance. Ah, that's discord. It's not there. People don't do that to us, and the more we train people to think about that, the more. I think they think about, oh, this person's being resistant to treatment. This person's having discord about their power and control issues. They ought to, is my mind. They ought to. Because they want power and control over the destiny of their lives. I do want to say one subtle thing that we didn't pick up. Glenn moved so beautifully towards the end when he said, I teach the audience to see the opportunity as a teacher or history 
of my suffering. And he stepped away from himself and said, this is my general philosophy. And it was in the last 30 seconds of our conversation, which he took it from the pain of writing the report to this is an opportunity for me. And there's something very moving in recognizing that and you reflecting that back even now that there was, there is, you know, that, that consistency with the where I'm at and the, the being helped to mm. rediscover that. You know, that 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 was that was true at the start of the conversation and it was yes. it, it was in there somewhere. But it was getting yeah. it was clouded by the fact that I was that this this is part of me was going, Oh my god, I I don't like this. And during so that, what I, love, what I love, Glenn, is that you came up with it. It was your whisper. Mm. I, we didn't talk about what do you teach your audience. I didn't ask you the question. It just came yes. towards the end. It was sort of remarkable. Like, this is an opportunity mm. for me to set boundaries and let it go, or an opportunity to learn something in which I could be of service of more people. And, and so from that perspective, then, the invitation for anybody listening to this is to go, what's the equivalent of that for the people you work with? Exactly. That, that whatever it is that, that you're describing that is in me, that, 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 that philosophy, my philosophy, that when I was given the opportunity to arise, it arose. And it, it offered me guidance. And it offered me, it offered me solace and um, choice and that that's what I'm left with as I leave and what's the equivalent then of what it is you when you're working with your own clients your service users can you create the space where their their generalized philosophy can arise for them to hear it themselves and can you see it or hear it in advance of them noticing it to you Mm. hearing the whisper Well, this has been wonderful. It has. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Stephen. Glenn, thank you again for bearing your soul for the world to uh, to peer into again. Um, so, yeah, thank you both. And, uh, yeah, again, uh, Stephen, we appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you both. Take care, everybody.